Good morning, PBC. It is good to be here with you guys this morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And this morning we will be primarily looking at verse 16. Well, I'm so excited to be with you all this morning. Um, PBC has been in such an encouragement to, to me and my wife and family, to my two daughters, and we have been so thankful for our time at PBC. Uh, we started coming here about a month after our first daughter is born, and now we're here uh, anticipating the birth of our third daughter in May. So it has been such a joy, such a, a delight uh, being here, uh, raising them here with you all. Um, at this stage of parenting that we're in right now, uh, there is something that has been uh, exciting and terrifying at the same time. And if you're a parent, you, you may know what I'm talking about. As a parent, when you begin to notice your, your kids imitating you, uh, copying the words you say, your tones, uh, everything you do, even your humor, uh, that again can be both exciting as well as terrifying. Um, I saw this recently with my daughter. Uh, she was, um, well, she enjoys uh, to joke with me and I have my, my dad jokes. And if you're a dad, you might know what dad jokes are. They're the, the lame jokes you tell, but they're, they're awesome. I love my dad jokes. Um, and so I I use probably my most common dad joke with my daughter is when she comes to me and says, Dad, I'm hungry. And I, I say to my daughter, I know it's painful, I know it's cheesy, but I say to her, Hello, hungry. I'm dad, right? And if you're a dad, perhaps you've done that before, and maybe your kid responds and says, No, I'm serious. And you look at them and you say, Serious? I thought you said your name was Hungry. And it, it's just, it's worse, it's terrible, I know, I get it. Um, but again, recently with my daughter, she's with my wife, and my, my wife Christine offers her something. Christine says, do you want this or that? And uh, Lila says, no. And Christine says, are you sure? And Lila says, sure, my name's not sure, it's Lila. <laughs> and when I heard that, I was like, Oh no, like the dad jokes have got to go. This is, this is not, not a good thing. And again, when your kids begin to imitate you, that can be both exciting and at the same time terrifying. And if that happens naturally between parents and their children, how much more uh, often, how much more should it happen between Christians and their Christ? How much more as we spend time with our Lord as we get to know him in, in the word, ought we to be growing in our maturity, in our imitation of Jesus, to adopt his priorities and perspectives, to, to speak the way he spoke, to act the way he acted around others. And, and now here's the problem that we, we all face with that, with that reality of imitating Christ. The problem is that we don't, Right? The problem is that we don't look like Christ as we ought to, that we fail to imitate our Lord in many ways. And that's why the world can often look at a Christian and, and have a negative perspective of Christians. It's why a guy like Gandhi could say, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And so that's a problem. 
That's an issue that if we're all honest with ourselves, we need to excel in and grow in as we seek to be more and more like Jesus. And so this morning, we need to look to God's word. We need to consider what God's word has to say about us imitating Christ, specifically this morning in the context of his love and patterning our love after him. This morning, we're going to be in 1 John, and I love the book of 1 John. It's so helpful. It's short, but it's really powerful as we begin to study it more and more. Uh, 1 John was written for many reasons, but one of those reasons is so that those who, would, who believe would know that they have eternal life, that they would know that they are saved, that they would have complete assurance of their salvation, And the reason John writes that, the reason he wants his audience to grasp that is because those whom he was writing to had been impacted by the false teachers who taught many things that were not true, but they also helped the church to to think that maybe, maybe they don't understand eternal life. Maybe they don't understand who Christ actually was. And in fact, these false teachers seem to have gone out from the people John was writing to and perhaps potentially even, even excluding them and saying, you don't actually know, you don't have the knowledge we have of true salvation. And so John writes this wonderful epistle to the church so that the church would know what exactly it means to have eternal life. So that each believer, each person who reads this book could walk away and say, I know I have eternal life and it is glorious and I'm so thankful for it. And the way John does that, by the way, is John provides many different tests uh, for the reader to consider. Uh, these tests sort of diagnose uh, the reader of 1 John and help the reader to consider, am I in or am I out? Am, am I truly saved or am I not? Do I pass the tests of faith and obedience and love or do I fail altogether? Not to say, of course, that, that our actions, our deeds save us. This, again, is the book recognizing, diagnosing, providing for us tests to see are we in or are we out. And unlike the COVID test, these tests are always accurate, right? These tests are always to be trusted and to guide us as we seek to even evaluate our own lives, And so the specific um, aspect or one specific test we're going to be considering this morning is the test of love, the test of love. And we're going to be asking the question, does this, what this text say about my life, is this true of me? And specifically, you can look in your Bibles at verse 11. I want us just to be uh, mindful of the context. John begins writing, exhorting the church to love. And, And what he does here is he explains what love is not or rather, how we should not love. He says, we ought not to love like Cain, because Cain murdered his brother. Uh, don't be surprised by the world if the world hates you, and, and, and don't also hate your brother. If you, if you hate your brother, a person who hates his brother actually is a murderer and does not have eternal life. So, so don't be like them. That is not the way we ought to define love. And that brings us right to verse 16 then where John is going to make it absolutely clear for us how we ought to define love. What is the standard, the ultimate standard of love that we must have in our own lives and hearts if we're both to know love and exhibit love and be assured of the love that we have? Because if you look at verse 14, the text says that we know, 
we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So, we're going to look at 1 John 3.16. I want to read it really quick. We'll pray and then we'll get going. So look in your Bibles at, at verse 16 and read together with me. John says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the call to love. And thank you, God, that though we recognize we fail to love in a Christ-like and Christ-honoring way, that you offer forgiveness, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I thank you that we have an advocate with you who, who ever lives to make intercession for us, who is our mediator, And so as we seek to love more and recognize even our own failings, I pray that your grace would enable us and and strengthen us and help us to, to know love and to love others well. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since I just graduated seminary, I have a three-point alliterated sermon. Those are the most godly ways to outline a sermon. So three points. Point number one, the exclusivity of true love. If you're taking notes, the exclusivity of true love. Now, what do I mean by exclusivity? What am I talking about there? John says, by this we have known love. And when I say exclusivity, I'm referring to something that's limited. If something is exclusive, it's limited to something else. It's like at master's. When a master's guy and a master's girl begin to like each other and talk more and more, they eventually come to an understanding that things are exclusive. So the guy cannot take out this girl for coffee and then also take out another girl for lunch and another girl for afternoon tea and another girl for dinner so as to to have more opportunity, more chances of finding a wife. Uh, At that point, he's exclusive to that girl. Things are exclusive. The relationship is exclusive. And I'm going to argue in this first point that true love is exclusive. There is an exclusivity to it. Because John says, by this we know love. He is is speaking in reference to the church. This is something that the church can exclusively claim to, to know. The church has known this love that he is referring to. This standard that he is referring to. And more than just knowing facts about love. More than just being able to quote 1 Corinthians 13, which is a great thing. More than defining love and our experience of love by the culture or by movies or something like that. John recognizes this is something every Christian has known. Again, not just intellectual knowledge, not just knowing the facts. This is something that every Christian has intimately experienced They know this love. If you are a believer in this room, you have known love by this. Again, John gave us the negative examples, but this is the standard. This is the example. If you're a Christian, this is the love that you have known. And so then, logically, there is a division. There is an exclusivity. There are those who have known this love, and there are those who have not known it. There are those who have experienced it and embraced and received this love, And there are those who have not. 
So true love is exclusive in its reception, but it's also exclusive in its expression. It's exclusive in its expression. And, and here's what I mean. When we talk about true biblical love, it is, it is exclusive in its expression in the sense that not everybody is, is capable of it. Not everybody is capable of loving. And I'm going to argue that, that even the unbeliever is, is not capable of loving truly in the sense that John is referring to and will refer to later on in this book. Now you might think, Zach, that's, that is a little, a little much, a little harsh. Are you telling me that an unbelieving husband cannot love his wife or that an unbelieving father cannot love his children? Well, like any issue, let's look at God's word and consider several factors. One passage to consider is Galatians 5. In Galatians 5, when Paul lists out the fruit of the Spirit, part of that is, is love. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. So we need to be careful of how we define it if that is a fruit of the Spirit. Titus 3 identifies the unbeliever. Paul explains the unbeliever in many negative ways. And one of those ways is that the unbeliever lives his life being hated by others and hating one another. Again, a, a negative um, idea for the unbeliever. The unbeliever being incapable of, of this sort of love. And if those passages don't convict, convince you, look at chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if we're going to say that, that every single person without exclusion, can, can love in the sense that John means it, we have to also affirm that every person, whether a, a believer or not, has been born of God and knows God. And, and, and right, we have a, a logical problem there. Only the believer has been born of God and knows God. And, and so then, therefore, only the believer is only capable of expressing this love. Uh, whatever the unbeliever is able to express, able to express, is not from the gospel, uh, responding to the gospel, is not empowered by the Holy Spirit, is not for the glory of God. So, so whatever infatuation, affection, dedication the unbeliever has, it, it is not this. It is not the true love that, that God lays out and calls us to as Christians in his word. Now, why do I make that point? Why do I bring that up? Well, as John is providing for us the standard of God's love, how dare we go looking to the world to define love for us? How dare we look to movies and culture to help us understand what love really is? If we do that, we're failing to look at God's standard. It is the standard. It is, it is not a standard among many other good standards. God's standard of love for the believer that he has known is what he is going to lay out here. So the question is then, where do you look? Now, as we talk about the standard of love, even the idea of love, today is Valentine's Day. And some of you might be celebrating sadness or Singles Awareness Day. Some of you might be <laughs> celebrating Valentine's Day. Either way, either way, the concept of love can be at times difficult for us to think through. Maybe you think about the, love, the idea of love and it terrifies you. You think of love and you think of maybe you don't 
you feel loved or haven't felt loved by your parents. Maybe you haven't felt loved by your siblings. Maybe you haven't felt loved by friends or, or others in your life. Maybe you think about your life and you think, and I, I, I'm single, I haven't felt this, any type of love reciprocated or, or given back to me. Uh, maybe you are dating or, or are married and you still do not feel or have not felt love in your own mind. And you hear love and you're just like, well, I, I haven't experienced that. Uh, maybe you've been married for a very long time. And still, at this point, you, you say to yourself, I, I don't feel loved. I haven't felt loved. And while all of those issues are, are important to think through and understand, and I don't by any means want to eliminate those issues, I, I do want to say that we cannot as Christians be honest and at the same time assert that we have not known love. Notice I used the word feel all, all the times in those references I just gave to other people. You, you may not have felt love by other people, but the Christian isn't one who determines or defines love by what he has felt by other people. He determines and defines love by what he has known from God. Right? So the Christian defines love not by those other things. The verse doesn't read, by this we have felt love. Someone bought me valentines and chocolates and stuff like that. Therefore, that's my standard of love. I have felt loved. Regardless of what other people have done for us or to us, again, John wants us to know that this is the standard. This is how the Christian has known love by what he's about to say here. So let me just ask you, how do you define love? How have you defined love? Can you say, I have known love because I have been loved here? I know exactly what that, that is? Or have you allowed the world's definitions of weak and feeble and conditional love to impact your understanding of love? And have you looked for other standards to help you understand true biblical love? We need to understand the exclusivity of true love. And again, that would be my first point. But now I want us to consider the example of true love. I want us to consider the example of true love. And here we can look at the next portion of the verse where John says, by this we have known love, that he laid down his life for us. That he laid down his life for us. That is the Christian's standard. That is the way the Christian has known love because he has known that, because he has, because he has put his faith in that. Christ laid down his life for us. Now the verb, the idea of laying down one's life is pretty specific to John in relationship to the cross. It, it's a word that not many other biblical authors and writers use, but John uses it in several different places, and that'll help us to understand it if we think through that. So for example, in, in John 13, John uses it to describe Jesus laying off or laying down his outer garments to wash the disciples' feet. And there you have that, that idea. He's giving up something that, that is his uh, to, to serve the disciples. But probably more, more pertinent to this context, more specific to this context, is in John 10, where Jesus says that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's what the good shepherd will do, Jesus says. The good shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. Jesus says that's what the good shepherd will do. And John says that is what the good shepherd has done. The good shepherd has laid down his life for us. Now, 
I think it's important for us to ask the question. We're talking about love. Jesus laid down his life for us. Now, why is that loving? Why is that loving? Think about it. Why, what is so loving about Jesus laying down his life for us? Why does that become the standard of our love? What is so loving about Jesus laying down his life for us? I think if we're honest, at times the gospel can become sort of a spiritual white noise to us, where we've heard it so many times. We've heard so many times that Jesus died on the cross for sinners like us, that that, that idea can just become kind of like just what we say and what we know intellectually. We, we believe that he laid down his life for us, but do we actually grasp all the implications of that? Or is that just spiritual white noise to us? Uh, for example, if you, were, if you were hiking at Vasquez Rocks, you guys like Vasquez Rocks? You go to Vasquez Rocks and there's the, the jagged rocks pointed to the sky, and maybe you climb up one of the, the highest peaks and you get to the very top, and you're looking at, at the surroundings, it's beautiful, but then you notice someone begins to climb, ascend Vasquez Rock. Someone's running up there, and then they get to you, and they look at you, and they say, I'm doing this because I love you, and they jump off. Wow. You'd be like, what is going on? That doesn't like do anything for me. I have no idea what, what you just did, uh, how that imp- impacts my understanding of love or why that was loving. I don't, I don't feel anything except for sadness for you. And I'm calling like 911. I, I, this is not a good scenario. That, that, is, that death, that sacrifice is random and obscure. It means nothing to me except just sadness, I, I guess. It's just going to be something I'm going to try to forget. I think that's in part how the world sometimes views the death of Christ. It's just this, this act of love, but they don't know how or why or what that means. How does that connect to us in any way? And so I want to ask some questions. Why is the act of Jesus laying down his life loving? And, and the first reason that I'm going to provide you for this morning is that Jesus knew what he would save us from. It wasn't random. He knew what he would save us from. And along with a a miserable and futile life lived apart from fellowship with God, apart from the fellowship with his body, he saved us from eternal hell. He saved us from eternal destruction. The Bible describes hell as an eternal reality. It's not a temporary thing or concept, or place. It is not uh, something that, that is going to ever have a, an end date. It's eternal. It's ongoing. There is no break. There is no sabbatical. There's no day off. It is eternal. No end. No way out. No back door. Jesus knew what he would save us from. He knew the eternality of hell. Because he being God is, is just and is holy and merciful and loving and, and all-knowing. And he intimately knew well the eternal extent of hell. He also knew that those who spend eternity in hell are conscious, aware. They're, they're not checking out and just receiving some sort of obscure punishment. They're conscious. They, they, they are aware of it. They are being tormented day 
and night, according to Revelations 14 and other passages. They're aware of it. Jesus knew what he was saving us from. The eternal conscious torment of hell. He knew that those who spend eternity there are there simply by nature of being in Adam, of living a sinful life, and and furthermore, for those who had heard the gospel, of rejecting the gospel. He knew that all who reject the gospel and all who are just born in Adam and live sinful lives would spend eternity being tormented there. And and, and we we don't preach hell to manipulate, we don't preach hell because we innately just like the idea of suffering. We preach hell because it's biblical and we understand that that concept of the eternality and the, the di- dynamics of hell truly make what Christ did for us that much more amazing. He, he was not like a Vasquez Rock skydiver who was just doing something Random. He knew exactly what he would save us from when he laid down his life for us. It was intentional. And if we as Christians fail to forget what Christ saved us from, we we are simply turning up the dial on our spiritual white noise and, and are more susceptible to just becoming unamused, unaffected, unimpacted by the glories of the gospel Christ knew what he would save us from when he laid down his life for us. That is why it was loving. He also knew what he, how he would save us. He also knew how he would save us. He knew that though being co-eternal, co-equal with the Father, he, he would, the, the word would become flesh, fully God, fully man, and that he would be born into this, this sin-cursed world. He would be a Nazarene. In his ministry, he would be rejected by, by the religious leaders. He would be forsaken by the disciples. He would be betrayed by Judas and even denied by Peter. He knew that, that pagans w- would put him on the cross. Idol worshipers would nail the Son of God to, to the cross. He knew ab- about the beatings and, and every element that he would undergo for us. He, he, he knew about it all. It wasn't a shock or a surprise. He, he always knew what he was getting himself into, as it were. And all those dynamics make what he did for us so amazing. He laid down his life for us. But on top of all of those things, the Son of God knew that he would be drinking the cup of the Father's wrath. Take, take the eternal conscious torment of every believer past, present, and future and filled that cup up and you have what Christ drank on the cross. That is infinitely worse than everything else that happened. He drank the Father's wrath on himself for us. Believer, do you grasp that he bore on his body your sins and the punishment for your sins that you, you deserved to suffer for in hell forever? Have you grasped that? Have you grasped the ramifications of that? He knew what he would save us from. He knew how he would save us. And he also knew why he would save us. Jesus is not in his salvation just like a lifeguard who pulls the kid out of the pool who's at the deep end, pats him on the head, and advises him to swim in the shallow end. He's not like that. 
He's not disconnected post-salvation. He didn't save just to, to bring us out of our miserable condition and destiny, but to bring us to himself. Not just to, to take us out of uh, God's condemnation, not just to wipe our slate clean, not just to uh, give us or take away our old identity and so many other things, but also to bring us to himself. He is not like an impersonal savior. He, say, he, he laid down his life for us to bring us to himself, to bring us to himself as, as we would be his people and he would be he would be our Lord, and he would possess us. He saved us for himself. He is not like this Vasquez Rocks skydiver who's just dying randomly and obscurely. Christ died intentionally, purposefully. He knew exactly what he would save us from. He knew exactly what it would cost him, and he knew why he would do it to bring us to himself, to grant us and and give us a righteousness, not our own, and and all of the blessings of salvation. He knew why he would save us. Let me just ask you, wherever you're at in life, if you're you're not a believer, have you put your, why haven't you put your faith in that? Maybe another question would be, have you? Have you put your faith in this Christ? Do you believe in this love? Do you trust the love of Christ manifested in him laying down his life for us. That is the example. That is the exclusive standard we look to as believers and say, that's, the, that's how I have known love. That has ha- this is how God has demonstrated love to me, a believer. Do you know that love? Have you put your faith in that love? This is the exclusive standard. This is the example we as believers look to. And now, our third point at the end of the verse, John, after saying, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, John says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Uh, this is an exhortation by obligation. This is what we ought to do. Remember, John had said in verse 11, don't love like Cain, or rather verse 12. We should not be like Cain. That is not the pattern of true love. That is not what we base our love off of, nor anything else. We base our love off of the pattern of Christ. We look at how he loved, we look at what he did, and we go and do likewise. We love as Christ loved. And do you see the pattern here at the end of verse 16? You have Christ And you have us, Christ laying down his life, we are to lay down our lives. Christ laid down his life for the church, we lay down our lives for the brothers. We are to follow Christ. It's not to say that that we don't love our enemies or our families or anyone anyone else. That, that, That is true, we should love those people. But John is placing particular emphasis here on the church. And remember, he is writing these tests to the church so that the church would know whether they're saved or not. And one of the ways we know we're saved or not, one of the evidences of those things is if our love for the church is real and and genuine. Do we follow that pattern? Do you follow that pattern of love for the body of Christ? I remember back in the day when you could go to California Adventure. Um, A long time ago, I went there and there was this room you could go to, and in this room, there would be a professional artist down front, and you'd be sitting in, in, the, in, the, in the rows, and you would watch them draw a Disney character. 
And I think I went there and they were drawing uh, Grumpy, one of the, the seven dwarves. And you're sitting there drawing and trying to you know, do the same thing that the, the professional artist was doing. And you go through this process and at the very end you look at what they did. And of course it looks exactly like the movie. And then you look at what you did. And it's, it's quite a bit different, right? You're like, I don't know where I, I messed up here. And if we were to go back, we would want to, to go look closer at, at the artist. What did they do? How did they, how did they make that line? How did, they, how did they make that look exactly like it was supposed to? We'd want to look back at the pattern, wouldn't we? And as believers, as we are considered, and, or rather called, to lay down our life for the church, we ought to ask ourselves, how does our love for the church in any way compare to Christ's love that he has already proven? I encourage you now, to, to look around in this room. It's okay, it won't be awkward. Well, it might be awkward, but look around. Look to your sides, side to side. Look behind you if you're feeling crazy. Look behind you. Look at these people. Everyone in here who is a believer has been washed by the blood of Christ. Every believer you looked at is, is robed with the perfect righteousness of Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we are called to love these people. Now, let me ask you, do you love these people? Do you love the people sitting around you? Do you love the people who you talked to when you came into church this morning? Do you love the people that you usually talk to after church? Do you love the body of Christ? Now, as you answer that question in your heart, let's consider the final two verses, or rather, yeah, the final two verses of this section, beginning in verse 17. John says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And what John has done is he's called us to pattern our love after Christ. We lay down our lives. There's the greatest example of our love that we could ever um, manifest for the church. But he's made an argument from the greater to the lesser. You might be on your high horse and look around and think, yeah, like I'd take a bullet for the people in this room. I I would lay down my life for the church. But the way to know if that's genuine or not is to ask yourself, Is my heart closed against the church? Is my heart closed against the body of Christ? Look there in verse 17. That's the language John uses. The the man who closes his heart against his brother is the man who isn't actually loving. That word for closes is almost always in, in, in the New Testament used to describe a door being closed. It's sort of like when you're home and a salesman is walking up to your door, you might be tempted, I'm not saying I've ever done this, maybe I have, um, you might be tempted to lock the door and you tell your family, okay, we gotta be extra quiet, right? You give your kids some candy, like no talking, we don't want to buy like that makeup product or something. Uh, we're gonna lock the door. And John says, look, if, you're, if your heart's like that towards your brothers and sisters, when they have needs, when they have needs and your heart is closed against them and you just give them the porch, you're just like, all right, you can, you, I'll, I'll show face at church. I'll, I'll be here, but that's it. My heart is closed against you. John's question is, how does God's love abide in you? Our hearts ought to be like an open door for the church. And the way that manifests in verse 18 is that we don't just love in word. Again, you might look around in this room and look at the people behind you and in front of you and think, yeah, I love them. 
I have this like affection for them. (laughs) But the question is not, do you just have an affection for them? Do you love them? Do you love them not just in talk, not just in word, but in deed and in truth? That is what we're called to. That is the kind of love we're called to. I'm going to do this exercise again. Look around. Look to your left and your right. You can look behind you. Look at the body of Christ. Think about the people in this room. Do you have this sort of love for them? Do you truly care for them? Do you long for their good? Do you long for their well-being? And I think, again, if we're honest, going back to what I said earlier, we all fail to mirror Christ's love, don't we? We fail to love the churches we're called to. And, and I think part of the reason we do that is because, first, people are not always lovely or easy to love. We can all testify to that. We are, we are not always easy to love. But another reason I think we, we fail to love is that we believe a lie. As Christians, we believe the lie that, that our little world, with our resources, time, and energy, and everything else we have, those things are the most important and so I'll love you as long as my little world isn't impacted by my love for you. If I can just keep my little world right here, I don't, want your, I, don't, I don't want your love or my love for you to impact that. We believe the lie that that is what is most important, that that is the way we should live as believers. And that's a lie. And that, that, that's a lie. And, and it's not what we ought to be aiming for if we truly are trying to pattern our love, our life after Christ. It's, it's something that we need help in too, right? Going back to the illustration at um, California Adventure, we, we, we look at, at our failed attempts to love one another and we, we think, man, this is a struggle. But the glorious thing is, guys, and if you've tuned out, tune in, the glorious thing is that the love of Christ is not just a pattern we follow. It's not just a pattern. It's also powerful, and when, when the apostles and when others grasped the love of Christ, it was, it was more than just a standard that they failed to reach. It was all-encompassing, incomprehensible, amazing truth that actually changed them. More than just sitting in a room at, at uh, California Adventure, it was more like sitting around a campfire and just being warmed and amazed by the love of Christ and just being like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. And the difference between those illustrations is that the the fire actually warms you. It actually impacts you. And as we behold the love of Christ, yes, we want to strive after that. Yes, we want to model our love after that. But when we fail, we better be warmed by it ourselves. We go back to that example. We behold that example. We consider what he saved us from. We consider how he saved us. And we consider why he did. And we, we just gaze at the love of God in Christ that we do not deserve. And it's when we do that that we are often far more ready to love and ready to forgive and be patient and extend ourselves for the good of the church. So do you love the body of Christ? I just want to conclude with with some potential exhortations for you as you think about loving the body of Christ. I, I want you to think about what Christ has done, of course, but here's just a few things if you're taking notes, that might just help you love the church as you're called to. First, be available to meet needs. Be available to meet needs. Don't be someone who, once church is done, you're like, all right, I'm out. It's Valentine's Day. I forgot to buy flowers for my wife. I am out. And you, you dash out. No, be available. 
Be here. Be part of the church. Don't just attend for yourself. Don't just be a consumer. Be available to meet needs for the church. But also be diligent to find needs. Don't just wait for the needs of the church to come your way. Be diligent to find them. Ask around. Ask the elders. Ask uh, the leaders of the church. Everyone you can. Hey, where are the needs in the church? And not just needs in terms of checking off some box or stacking a chair, which you should stack the chairs. Um, When I say need, what I really mean is more the people. Where in the church are are the people needing encouragement, needing prayer, needing needing physical help or or, or anything? Discipleship, intercession. Where today? Where today, as church concludes, can you find one person or hopefully more that you can love according to this pattern, that you, can, that you can serve, that you can give yourself for. It might take up uh, 10 minutes of your Valentine's Day, but that's okay. Where can you love the church this morning? Friends, that's my call to you as we consider the love of Christ, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let us pray asking for the Lord's help in this endeavor. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your love. I thank you that you've loved all of the believers in this room from eternity past, that you've loved us with an everlasting love. And Father, I pray that as the church, we would, we would make sure that our standard of love is what Christ has done, that we would look at his example, that we would consider him laying down his life for us, that we would know what, what he saved us from and, and the, the fact that he paid it all and why he saved it, saved us, God. I pray that you would help us as a church to pattern our love after the Lord Jesus Christ and in each and every way show the world who we belong to, who we are by the love we have for one another. Thank you for this time. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.